all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's up, Far, Far Away family? How is everyone doing today? We hope all is well on your side of the galaxy. It's been kind of hectic out here on the Outer Rim. The Empire is trying to get the galaxy right, and some punk kid is running around saying he's a Jedi, which we all know ain't true. All the Jedi are dead. There once was a time that the dang do-gooders were everywhere, trying to tell everyone what they could and could not do, but our glorious Emperor took care of all that. Praise Palpatine, hell Darth Vader. Now, if he could just get rid of these dang rebels, everything would be wonderful. And the Huts, Not because they're an evil crime syndicate, but because they are just disgusting. They are giant fat worm looking thing with taller arms. Like the rest of their body grew up, but the arms are just stuck in the first grade. But that's not what you have tuned in to hear today. You want to hear more about Darth Bane and his young and beautiful apprentice Xana. I know, I know, Bane is pretty dope. And when we left him last week, Xana was in the middle of infiltrating a separatist group. And for Bane, he was failing again in his attempt to create a holocron. So let's see what's going on with him now. Who's this? The man at the door demanded, eyeing Xana with suspicion. He was human, though his face and shaved head were covered with green and purple tattoos that made it difficult to pick out his features. He wore a light blue shirt and dark blue pants. He was shorter than Kel, but much thicker through the waist and chest. She's with me back, Kel replied, pushing him aside and passing through the door, pulling Xana along with him. The unfurnished room beyond was small and dark. Music and loud laughter could be faintly heard from the cantina on the floor above them, but those gathered in the cellar spoke only in low, conspiratorial whispers. Inside the room were four others, gathered in a tight circle. Two more young men, a woman only slightly older than Xana, and a blue-skinned, red-eyed Chiss female. Pac trailed after them, unwilling to let the matter drop. You can't bring her here, he insisted. She works at the embassy, Kel assured him, relaying the false backstory Xana had offered at their first meeting. She can help us. The heavier man grabbed Kel by the elbow and spun the twillick around to face him. You don't get to make that decision. Hetan is our leader, not you. Hetan put me in charge of this mission, Kel reminded him angrily. Only because you offered to purchase those forged passes to get us past the embassy guards. Pac snapped back. He put you in charge because he needed your credits. Hetton doesn't need anyone's credits, the red-skinned Twillick replied contemptuously. He put me in charge because he was tired of dealing with oafish thugs like you. Pac's lips curled up in a menacing snarl, but Kel had already turned away dismissing his underling. Xana waited to see if the tattooed man would go after Kel, but he only shook his head and went back to his position guarding the door. Kel marched over to the others, who widened their circle to accommodate him. Xana hung back slightly, noting the others regarding her with curious stares. She stared back, though she was already well aware of everything she needed to know about them. Like Kaladin, they were revolutionaries, young, idealistic, and pitiful, easily swayed and manipulated by fiery speeches and impassioned rhetoric. They had been recruited by the mysterious Hetton into joining the Anti-Republic Liberation Front, one of a hundred small, insignificant separatist movements scattered across the galaxy. 
For a small radical group, however, the ARLF was particularly well-funded, and the membership included an inordinate percentage of highly skilled and dangerous individuals. Elite warriors like Kel, or beings with advanced military training, were the norm rather than the exception. For one reason or another, they had all sworn allegiance to Hetton and his organization. Xana imagined they believed themselves to be heroes, or even eventual martyrs to their glorious cause. Yet she felt nothing but disdain for them. Despite their martial backgrounds, they were little more than overgrown children, gathering in tiny dark rooms to whisper secret plans and plot petty terrorist actions against a galactic government that didn't even know they existed. Even Kel wasn't above her contempt. Still, she did have to admit that there was something appealing about him. Allowing him to fall in love with her hadn't been necessary to complete her mission, yet she had been willing, even eager, to have his attention. The attraction went beyond his mere physical appearance. There was a wild energy about him. He burned with a savage arrogance. Its fire enveloped her whenever they were together. She knew she was drawn to his warmth in part because her master was always so cold. Bane had served as her guardian for ten years. He had raised her and protected her and trained her in the ways of the Sith. Yet she didn't think of him as a father figure. While he hadn't been cruel or abusive, neither had he shown any affection toward her, not even a trace of empathy or compassion. He valued her not as a person, but as his heir. She was nothing but a mechanism to continue the Sith legacy after his death. Encased in his orbalisk armor, Bane was barely even human anymore. Anger, hate, love, desire. They were nothing to him now but a means to fuel his power. Yet Xana still needed to feel. She hungered for the raw passion of real emotions. She craved them. She had found them in Kel. He had given her the one thing her master could not. But she never considered betraying or abandoning Darth Bane. She had seen his absolute command of the Force. She had tasted the power of the dark side in him. He was the Dark Lord of the Sith. And Xana would one day tear the mantle from his shoulders and seize it for her own. Nothing... Not fanciful notions, not the temptation of emotional fulfillment, or even love, would keep her from claiming her rightful destiny. Compared with this, Cal and the other separatists gathered in the room were tiny, insignificant people, leading small, meaningless lives. Their only worth was that Bane saw a potential use for them, and it was her duty to make sure that whatever they had planned fit into her master's grand design. Kel had revealed their intended scheme to her during a romantic dinner. They planned to kidnap minor local officials and hold them for ransom. They actually believed the media interest generated by their actions would be the catalyst that would unite the people of the Outer Rims to rise up as one and overthrow the Senate. They were pathetic in their naivete. Fools Xana had chosen to become pawns in her own mission. They were tools to be used and then discarded, once they'd served their purpose. And that purpose was to die, so that she could fulfill the directive of her master. My fellow patriots, Kel began, 
his voice rising in the manner of a professional order giving a public performance. We are united in a single cause, the complete and utter destruction of the Republic. Yet what have we done so far to accomplish this? We speak of revolution, yet we are afraid to do what is necessary to make it happen. But that will soon change. In three days, we will force the Republic to stand up and take notice of us. Three days? Sindra the Chiss protested. What are you talking about? Hedden wants us to strike during the armistice celebrations, Pak added. It will draw more attention if we act on the anniversary of the Rusan Reformations. Why wait months when the perfect opportunity is right before us? Kel asked, using the same argument Xana had used to persuade him. Nobody will care about the fate of a single ambassador. We must find a target that will make the entire galaxy sit up and take notice. Who? One of the young men demanded. Chancellor Valorum. Chancellor Valorum's term ended two years ago. Pak spat out from over by the door. He still serves the Senate as a diplomatic emissary, and it was his so-called unification policies that have drawn so many worlds back into the web of Republic influence. He is responsible for everything we are fighting against, the symbol of everything we wish to destroy. He is the perfect target. How do we get to him? Sindra asked. He has scheduled a secret meeting with the heads of Sereno's most powerful noble families. We believe he's going to try to persuade them to take steps to put down the separatist movements on this world, movements like our own. How did you find out about this? The young woman asked. Kel nodded in Xana's direction, his head tails twitching slightly. She stepped forward and began to speak. My name is Reyna. I am an administrative assistant at the Republic Embassy. This was the lie she had first used to draw Kel's attention, and it was a convenient cover for the information she had purchased from one of Bane's mysterious underground contacts. Okay, this chapter starts off with Kel bringing Xana to a separatist meeting. Now, there were some other characters mentioned in this chapter, Pac, Head, and Syndra, but I get a feeling that they're not going to be around long enough to even talk about them too much. I don't want to get into too much detail about them. Well, okay, they do mention that Syndra is a Chiss female, and I didn't think that the Chiss were introduced into Star Wars universe yet. I thought Thrawn was the first Chiss brought up in Star Wars, but I guess I was wrong. Wouldn't be the first time, and it probably won't be the last time. But let's keep it pushing. There was a Another name that caught my attention, Hedden. I have a feeling that he will play some other part in this story, but I don't know what it is as of yet. But the group called themselves the ALRF. They aren't really anything special and Xana found them revolting. Now she did like the way the kill made her feel, but that was more because Bane didn't show her any emotion. So it was kind of like Kel gave her attention and she craved attention. Xana had told Kel a lie about her working at the emissary, so she had insight that they didn't have. That's how she got Kel to bring her into the meeting. Then Kel started preaching about making a difference, sounding just like the radical he was. Then he hit them with the mission he came up with. They are going to kidnap Chancellor Valorum. Puck spouts out why he is not even a chancellor anymore. Kel explains that Valorum is still an ambassador for the Republic. This would cause the Republic to take notice. And then he tells them that they would be carrying out the mission in three days. On the anniversary of the 
Rusan Reformation Act. When Syndra asks how are they supposed to kidnap Valorum, Dell explains that Xana had found out where Valorum would be. That is exactly why she was at the group's meeting. They were all unaware that Bane had got the information from one of his contacts. Everything is in place, Lord Eddles. The Mune croaked, handing a data pad to her master. Everything you will need is in here. Xana had never seen a Mune before, and she found something inherently off-putting about this one's appearance. He was tall enough to look Bane in the eye, but his head, body, and limbs were elongated and thin, as if he had been horribly stretched to reach his current height. His skin was pale, pasty white, with a disconcerting hint of a sickly pinkish hue. His features were flat, his eyes and cheeks appeared sunken, the corners of his mouth turned down in a perpetual frown, and he didn't appear to have a nose. His head was hairless, and he wore drab brown clothing. He looked extremely uncomfortable beneath Tatooine's twin sons, but he was too professional to give voice to his complaint. Earlier, Bane had explained that this meeting in the sandy wasteland of the Dune Sea was the culmination of a plan set in motion nearly a year before, shortly after they had first touched down on Ambria. A plan she had inadvertently been the catalyst for. Scribbled in the back cover of the manuscript she had discovered and presented to her master at the Sith camp on Rusan had been a long list of cryptic numbers. Anonymous accounts with the intergalactic banking clan. Lord Cordis, Bane told her, had been a collector of rare and expensive treasures. Over the years, he had siphoned off an incredible fortune from the combined wealth of Khan's Brotherhood of Darkness and secreted it away drawing on it whenever he purchased another item to feed his avarice. With the Brotherhood gone, Bane was the only one left who knew about and could lay claim to those accounts. But material wealth had no appeal to her master beyond what use he could put it to. Information is a commodity. It can be traded, sold, and purchased. And in the end, credits are only as valuable as the secrets they can buy. Over the past year, Bane had begun to spend the credits. Key administrative officials were bribed to gain access to classified files. Government spies and well-connected criminal figures were hired to be his agents. Using his newfound wealth, he carefully built a network of informants to be his eyes and ears across a hundred different worlds. However, Bane never had any direct contact with any of these people. As the last of the Sith, it was vital that he remain shrouded in anonymity. Everything he'd accomplished had been through the use of a broker, the Mune, who now stood before them. You followed my instructions exactly, Bane asked the Mune. Precisely, Lord Eddles. All payments will be made through tertiary accounts, completely untraceable to the source, the Mune assured him. In return, you will receive regular dispatches and a constant stream of legal and illegal information. Any instructions you wish to pass on to your agents will be delivered through secure messaging services. Completely anonymous. And no one else knows I am involved. You are well aware of my reputation, the Mune reminded him. I pride myself on discretion. That is why people like you come to me, Lord Edels. Then our business here is done. Glancing briefly down at Xana, 
Lemune turned and made his way slowly across the sand toward his waiting ship. The young girl watched, eagerly anticipating the manner of his death. The idea that her master would allow the Mune to leave this meeting alive never entered her mind. He alone knew the identity of the individual responsible for creating the galaxy-wide web of spies and informants. He alone had seen Bane's face. The Mune reached the ship without incident and climbed aboard. She continued to watch as the engines flared to life and the vessel began to climb in the sky. When it disappeared beyond the horizon, unharmed, she turned to her master in disbelief. You let him live? He still has value to us, Bane answered. But he's seen you. He knows who you are. He knows only as much as he needed to. A wealthy man, using the name Lord Edels, hired him to set up an anonymous information network. He has no knowledge of who I really am, or what my true purpose might be. And he has no knowledge of where or how to find me, unless I contact him with a location for another meeting. Xana recalled a story her master had once shared with her about a healer on Ambria named Khalid. Bane, near death, had come across the healer and ordered the man to help him. But Khalid, sensing the power of the dark side in her master, had refused. Ultimately, Bane had compelled Khalid's obedience by threatening the life of his daughter. Once the Dark Lord was healed, he had taken no action against the man who had dared to defy him. The healer had power, and her master knew that the value of letting him live outweighed the risks and petty pleasure of ending his life. No purpose in his death. Xana muttered, chewing her lip thoughtfully. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Reyna can provide us with the exact times and locations of Chancellor Valorum's schedule, Kel explained to the rest of the small group. When his shuttle touches down, we'll be there waiting for him. He'll have guards, Pock warned. Only his personal security detail, Xana countered. Anything more would draw unwanted attention. He wants to keep his arrival here secret, Kel added. The Senate refuses to officially acknowledge that separatist movements even exist, so his mission has been classified as a personal visit. Three days is too soon, Syndra objected. We need more time to prepare. Everything we need is right here, Kel replied. We have the weapons and we're all trained to use them. We know where and when the Chancellor is coming. What else is there? An order from Hetton, Pock muttered. Kel turned on him angrily. Do we really need Hetton's permission? Are we children? Are we incapable of acting on our own? He's our leader, Pock muttered sullenly. He tells us what to do. So does the Republic Senate, Xana chimed in. Isn't this the very thing you're fighting against? 
Obedience to a master, any master, is still slavery. She said the words with utter conviction, even though she didn't believe them. At the same time, she reached out with the force to touch the minds of everyone in the room. It was possible to use the dark side to dominate another's will, but that would not serve her purpose here. The effects of mental domination would begin to fade after a few hours. By the time of Chancellor Valorum's arrival, any direct influence she exerted over Kel and his friends would be completely gone. Xana preferred a more subtle and insidious approach. Instead of using the Force to bend them to her will, she was gently prodding their collective psyche, pushing their thought patterns to make them more emotional, more aggressive. By itself, the process was useless, but combined with persuasive words to further stir the blood, the effects could be more powerful and more permanent than the brute force of simple mind control. However, the words couldn't come from her. She was a stranger here. They didn't trust her. Their natural instincts would be to reject her arguments. In their artificially induced hyper-aggressive state, they would quickly turn against her. They needed to be convinced by someone they knew. Someone like Kel. You say you want independence, the handsome Twillick told them. You say you will fight for your freedom. Yet when I offer you this chance, you want to slink away like a calf hound banished from its pack. We should wait for the armistice celebrations, Sindra insisted. We need to stick to the original plan. A plan is nothing until you act on it, Kel replied. We talk about what we will do in the future. But when the armistice celebrations come, how easy will it be to find another excuse to wait yet again? Secret meetings will not bring change to the galaxy. Plans alone will not make the Senate tremble or bring the Republic to its knees. We must take action, and the time for action is now. Zanna recognized her words being spoken with Kel's voice. She had fed them to him over weeks of intimate conversations, planting the seeds of ideas, then watching them grow. Now he spoke the words with passion and fire, delivering them as if he truly believed they were his own. Bane would be pleased. This was true power to twist another to your purpose, yet have him believe he was in control. Cal was her puppet, but his pride and ego had blinded him to the strings she used to make him dance. We stand on the precipice of a momentous event, he continued. In three days, we will strike a great blow against the tyrants of the Republic. The first step in our long and glorious march to independence and true freedom. A spontaneous cheer of assent rose up from the room, and Xana knew Kel had won them over. Only Pak and Sindra showed any signs of reluctance. But as the rest of the group began working on the details of the plan to capture Chancellor Valorum, even they set aside their hesitations. The meeting lasted long into the night, and when it was over, she and Cal went back to the small apartment she'd rented as part of her cover story. You were magnificent tonight, she breathed. This is the last time I can see you until all this is over, Kel warned. The others are counting on me. I can't have any distractions. As an answer, she reached out and grabbed his wrist. 
then pulled him close in a tight embrace. He left the next morning. Zana kissed him goodbye and went back to sleep. Later, she rolled out of bed and began to gather her things. Her mission here was over. She knew she would never see Kel alive again. It was time to return to Ambria. Okay, I don't know why they use this echo sound whenever they do a flashback. It's kind of annoying if you ask me. But the flashback is of Bane retrieving the information from a mute, who was under the impression that Bane's name was Lord Edels. Bane couldn't come up with a better alias than Lord Edels. That's the worst name ever. It sounds like a messed up type of cookie. And Xana ain't a very good apprentice. She should have told her master that that name was garbage. Also, she was messed up in the way that she described the mute. Actually, when she said that he didn't have a nose, I laughed for like a cool minute or two. I don't know why, but I found it hilarious. But then it goes on to explain the way that Bane was using Cordis's money because he didn't need it anymore. He was dead. And Bane laid claim to everything that was left by the Sith. Wait a minute. He tricked Khan into killing all the Sith. Now he is robbing them? Bane is a real gangster. But he was using the money to buy information. That's how he knew where Valorum was going to be. So he used the Mune to do his dirty work. That way he could stay hidden in the shadows. Pray Sidious. Bane is smarter than he looks. Well, right now he looks like a monster, so Dirt looks smarter than he does. But this is the way that Bane can stay anonymous. Then Xanax questions Bane. Why did you let the Mune stay alive? Bane explained to her that the man is useful. Xana still didn't understand. So Bane tells her about the healer named Caleb, the one that helped him when Bethany poisoned him. He explained how Caleb helped him after he threatened his daughter. But Bane left him alive because he never knew if he might need his services again. You never know when you're going to need somebody, so it's not okay just to kill everybody. Then it fades back to Kale talking about the plan. The others don't think that they should do it. They don't think it's a good idea. They want to ask Hedden what he thought about the plan. Kale screams out, what, are we a bunch of children? We can make our own decisions. This is when Xana tells them that Hedden is no different than the Republic. A master tells you what to do. If you're free, you don't answer to a master. Then she reaches out with the force and gives a little slight nut, something that helped them in their decision. That is one ability that I wish I had. I would never have to argue with my kids again. I could just use the force to get them to do their chore. But Xana was just playing off of the thing that they already wanted, and everything was going as planned. After a little more time and effort, the group caves. Then they got to planning out the mission. And after working well into the night, Kel and Xana leave for her apartment. When they arrive, Kel tells her that this would be the last time he could see her, at least until the mission is over. The next morning, he leaves and Xana knows she will never see him again. Now it is time for her to return to Ambria. Her mission had come to an end. The camp was in ruins. The tents were leveled, their canopy shredded and torn. Wooden supply crates had been smashed into sawdust and splinters. Their contents tossed and scattered on the wind. Hundred kilogram fuel cells lay strewn about the campsite, some thrown 50 meters from where they had been stored. The ground was littered with debris and marred by dozens of still smoldering black scorch marks Xana recognized as the remnants of a terrible storm of unnatural lightning. The air still crackled with the power and energy of the dark side that made her tingle in fear and anticipation. It was easy enough to guess what had happened. Bane had failed yet again in his attempt to create a holocron. Then, in a blind rage, lashed out at the world around him with all the power of the Force. If she had been here when it happened, Xana wondered, could she have stopped him? Would she even have been able to survive? She saw Bane seated on the far side of the camp, his back to her as he stared out to the horizon, meditating on his failure. He turned to face her as she approached, rising up to his full two-meter height so that he towered above her. 
His clothes had been torn and burned away, revealing the full scope of the Orbalisk infestation. Hundreds of creatures clung to him. Except for his face and hands, his body was now completely covered. He looked as if he were wearing a suit of armor, fashioned from the hard oblong shells of dead crustaceans. Yet she knew that beneath the shells, the parasites were still alive, feeding on him. Bane claimed the Orbalisks enhanced his power, granting him unnatural strength and healing abilities. Yet witnessing the aftermath of his failure with the Holocron, Xana wondered at what cost those abilities came. What use was greater power if it could not be controlled? To her relief, the fury seemed to have passed, and Xana knew better than to ask him about it. Instead, she offered news of her mission. It's done. When Chancellor Valorum shuttle lands, Kel and his followers will be waiting for him. You have done well, Bane answered. As always, she felt a surge of pride and accomplishment at her master's praise. But her satisfaction was tempered by memories of Kel, and the knowledge that he was lost to her forever. Is there any chance they will succeed? She asked. No, Bane said after a moment's consideration. Then what purpose do they serve? She demanded, finally giving in to her frustration. I don't understand why you send me on a mission like this. Why waste all this time and effort if we know they're going to fail? They don't need to succeed to be of value to us, Bane answered. The separatists are only a distraction. They draw the attention of the Senate and blind the eyes of the Jedi Council. Blind them? The Jedi have surrendered themselves to the will of the Senate. They have let themselves sink into the morass of politics and bureaucracy. The Republic seeks a single, unified government to maintain peace throughout the galaxy. And the Jedi have been reduced to nothing more than a tool to make it happen. Each time radicals strike against the Republic, the Jedi Council is called upon to take action. Resources are wasted on quelling rebellions and uprisings, keeping their focus away from us. But why must the Separatists always fail? Xana asked. We could help them succeed without risking exposure. If they succeed, they will gain support, Bane explained. Their power and influence will grow. They will become harder to manipulate and control. It is possible they might even become strong enough to bring down the Republic itself. Isn't that a good thing? Zan asked. The Republic keeps the Jedi in check. It maintains control and imposes order across thousands of worlds. But if the Republic falls, a score of new interstellar governments and galactic organizations will rise. It is far easier to manipulate and control a single enemy than twenty. That is why we must seek out radical separatist groups, identify the ones that have the potential to become true threats, then encourage them to strike before they're ready. We must exploit them, playing them off against the Republic. We must let our enemies weaken one another while we stay hidden and grow strong. One day, the Republic will fall, 
and the Jedi will be wiped out. He assured her, but it will not happen until we are ready to seize that power for ourselves. Xana nodded, though her mind was reeling as she tried to comprehend the true complexity of her master's intricate and convoluted political machinations. She thought back to all her past missions, trying to see how each one played a part in his plans. You have never questioned your missions before, they noted. He didn't sound angry, but rather curious. She didn't want to tell him about Kel. Even though she'd accomplished everything Bane had demanded of her, she knew he would view her feelings for the Twi'lek as a sign of weakness. Even if I didn't understand the purpose behind my missions, I never had reason to doubt your wisdom, Master. She answered, realizing she could turn his question to her advantage. Yet, you doubt me now. She took a long, slow look around, letting her eyes linger over the wreckage of the camp surrounding them. I've never seen you lose control of your power like this before, she whispered, shrouding her deceit in a kernel of truth. I feared the Orbalisks could be impairing your judgment. I feared they might have finally driven you mad. Bane didn't answer right away, but when he did, his voice was short and gruff. I control the Orbalisks. They do not control me. Of course, Master. She apologized. But she knew from his reaction that she had successfully planted the seed of doubt. Attempting to manipulate her master was a dangerous game. But it was a risk she had to take. If the Orbalists drove him into another rage, he might kill her. Convincing Bane to seek out some way to rid himself of the infestation was a matter of self-preservation. Clean up the camp. Ben commanded. Then head back to Sereno. We need more supplies. She acquiesced with a bow and began gathering up debris as Bane resumed his meditations. As she slowly restored some semblance of order to their camp, Xana began to see that the doubt she'd planted in Bane's mind could have one other valuable long-term benefit. It was inevitable she would one day challenge him for the title of Sith Master. But Bane was incredibly strong, both physically and in the Force. Encased in a suit of living armor that augmented his powers and protected him from virtually all known weapons, he was nearly invincible. Convincing Bane to shed his orbalus coat, Xana realized, might be the only real hope she had of defeating him and achieving her destiny. Now, Xana comes home to a surprise. Their entire camp was destroyed. Bane was sitting off to the side of the camp. It doesn't say it in the book, but I think he was pouting like a small child. He had already threw a tantrum like one. I can only guess now he is pouting. Xana looks at him in disgust because of the Orbalus. He said they gave him greater ability, but she questioned at what cost. Then she goes on to tell her master of her mission and how it was a success. He praised her saying she did a good job, but her satisfaction of pleasing her master was short-lived as her mind wandered back to Kel. Then she asked Bane what was the purpose of the mission. 
Why did they waste time and effort if they knew they were going to fail? Bane tells her that they don't need to succeed. They are only a distraction to blind the Republic and the Jedi. When she asked what that had to do with anything, Bane tells her that the Jedi have been reduced to a tool. A tool to help the Republic unify the galaxy. They are wasting resources. And if the Separatists start winning, they would be too hard to control. Maybe even take over the Republic. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. Then Bane asks her why she is questioning her mission. Something that she has never done before. Xana quickly turns it around on Bane. Saying that she didn't know if the Orbalists were clouding his judgment. Bane told her that he was in control of the Orbalists. Not the other way around. But she had planted the seeds of doubt in his mind. She only did it to save herself and she knew she could never take her place as the master of the Sith if he had a suit of armor on that a saber could not penetrate. And that's where the chapter came to an end. It was a filler chapter and it wasn't the most exciting chapter either, but it did give us some insight into Bane's thought process. How he views the Republic and the Jedi. He knows he needs the Republic to defeat the Jedi. Plus we learn how far Xana is willing to go to please her master, as well as her plan to defeat him. Now let's get to the quote for this week. And it comes to us from Thomas Edison. And he said, many of us defeat is it's only because we did not realize how close we were to success when we gave up. The worst thing a person can do is give up. Quit before following a plan to the end. It has a way of draining the life from you. The constant question in the back of your mind, what might have happened? I see it way too often. Someone will start something and as soon as it gets difficult, they quit. Obstacles are a reminder that you're on the right path. If you don't run into obstacles, then you are probably doing something wrong. George Lucas had many obstacles when he made Star Wars, but he pushed through them and created an empire. If he would have just gave up and quit, we wouldn't have Star Wars today. And this podcast wouldn't even exist. Quitting something is never an option. Once you have started, you have to follow it through to the end. I have a saying on my computer and on my phone that I look at multiple times every day. I will never fail because I refuse to quit. And that saying is why I'm at a wonderful point in my life. Let me tell you the reason that I started living by that saying. When I was a young man, I had an idea and I started working on that idea. It was a mobile detail service for cars. No one else was doing anything like that. So I bought a truck and a bunch of tools, but it started to get difficult and things weren't working as I planned. So I quit. About two years later, I seen a box truck. It said Manly Mobile Auto Detail right on the side. I was like, dang, someone stole my idea, but no one really stole it. I quit. So the idea was out there and open. About 10 years later, I met the owner of that company. Now he had about a thousand trucks that serviced the area that I lived in, and he was living in a $9 million mansion. So from that point on, I said I would never quit again. And living by that motto has gotten me to where I am today. Not only financially, but also I am doing the things that I love to do. I get to create wonderful things and share them with others. Two things that truly make me happy. Sharing is something that will give you more joy than anything else in life, at least for me. But if I would have quit, I would have never been able to do the things that make me happy. And I would not be able to do the things that make others happy. I want you to think back on all the things that you have quit in your life and ask yourself, was that the best decision? Be absolutely honest with yourself. It might just change your life forever. Okay, that's enough for today. Tune in next week as we cover chapter 11 of Darth Bane, Rule of Two. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.